Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalina Hai. In this fifth season, I'll be exploring how we can change the ways in which we relate to and structure our existing systems so that we can build towards a more resilient future. From alternative economic models and business practices to our role in and perception of the more than human world, this season will explore how we might design ways of living that both enrich and sustain all forms of life, not just our own. For more information, you can find additional resources and links at natalinahigh.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at natalinahigh. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. With a passion for sustainability, for circular economy and zero waste, today's guest, Tessa Clark, started her career in the corporate world, working for companies such as Dyson, Planet Retail and the Boston Consulting Group. In 2015, Tessa and her COO, Sasha Celestial One, co-founded Olio, a food-sharing app between neighbours designed to help eliminate food waste. She is a champion of businesses that combine profit and purpose, and the success of her company serves as an inspiring example of what can be achieved with a bold vision and perseverance. What started out as a local initiative in North London has since grown into a phenomenally popular app, serving over 2.5 million users in just four years. In fact, Olio has shared over 9 million portions of food, saved 1.3 billion litres of water, and over 8,168 tonnes of carbon that would otherwise have been emitted. Olio's impact has been widely recognised, most notably by the United Nations, who highlighted it as a beacon for the world, and by Vivitech, who awarded Olio the title of Next European Unicorn. This was an action-packed conversation full of amazing resources and tips, and so if you're looking for ways to make an impact and work towards a more equitable, sustainable and just society then this conversation is for you. So Tessa, thank you very much for joining me in conversation today. No worries, lovely to be with you. (laughs) So from your perspective, I'd like to start by asking you what I always ask my guests, which is what do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now? Wow, start with the easy questions. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. What do I think is happening in the global uh, psyche? Well, I'm going to tell you what I would like to think is happening. Um, Mm. Actually, I think there's quite a schism. I think there are a group of people, a very, very, very large group of people who are just trying to get by and their whole psyche is preoccupied with that and they are struggling terribly. I think there's another group of people who are experiencing the pause button probably for the first time in their lives and I sort of have this almost kind of mental imagery that prior to Covid it was almost like we were all sort of moving around this sort of thick sticky glue which was preventing us from actually sort of changing the world in the meaningful ways that we need to and what Covid has done actually is kind of washed away a lot of that treacle uh, and it is giving us an opportunity to think in a non-incremental way to think differently about the type of world that we all want to and quite frankly need to exist in. And so speaking to that then with what sounds like 
kind of a reappraisal of our values, maybe some introspection and having this opportunity to make step changes in how we choose to live. I'd love to to dive into Olio, the company that you co-founded, and ask what moved you to set this up? Because you did this at a time where people were perhaps less conscious about um, our impact on the environment, on the ways in which we relate to and use food sources. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your story. What moved you to set up Olio? Well, I'll, I'll start right at the very beginning, if you don't mind, which is where I was born and raised, which is my parents' farm in the middle of uh, nowhere, really, in North Yorkshire. So it's sort of fa- fairly remote. And through that sort of upbringing, I learned a couple of things. First of all, just how much hard work goes into producing the food that we all eat and too often take for granted every day. So I had a well-spent or misspent youth, depending upon how you look at it, sort of working hard on my family farm. Also, when you grow up on a farm, you understand the concept of circularity. It's just second nature because that is how things work. And wherever possible, you're trying to get rid of any concept of waste. And actually, waste just becomes an input uh, for something else. And as a result of that upbringing, I grew up with a pathological hatred for waste of any variety, but Mm. in particular for food waste. Now, I didn't think anything in particular about this. I went off and had what could be described as a fairly classic corporate career. But my past and my present collided through a seemingly inconsequential moment in my life. It was about six years ago now where I was living in Switzerland for work with my family and moving back to the UK. And on moving day, the removal men said to me that I had to throw away all of our uneaten food. (laughs) Now, obviously, this is something I was not prepared to countenance. And so much to their irritation, I stopped packing and instead bundled up my (laughs) newborn baby and toddler at the time and went out onto the streets armed with this food, trying to find someone to give it to. And to cut a long story short, I failed miserably. I got very, very emotional about the fact that I'd gone to all this effort when you know, I really need to be backpacking to try and share this food, and I had failed. I thought about knocking on my neighbours' doors, but I realised I didn't have time for that, and even if I did, it would, would have been really awkward and embarrassing because they might not want what I had. And so I ended up going back to my apartment, and when the packing men weren't looking, I smuggled the non-perishable food into the bottom <laughs> of my packing box. Brilliant. And that was the moment when I thought, this is ridiculous. There has to, Surely there has to be a better solution to this. You know, to me, it seemed criminal to put perfectly good food in a bin but equally it felt like I was in the process of performing a criminal offence by sort of smuggling food across a border and I had been working in the digital world for at least 10 years at that point I knew there was an app for absolutely everything and I couldn't believe that there wasn't actually an app where I could just advertise my food and a neighbour could request it and pop around and pick it up and so that really was the genesis for Olio, which is um, the world's first neighbour-to-neighbour food sharing app. And we now have over two and a half million uh, users today. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's extraordinary. (laughs) So then in terms of the vision that you had, it sounds like it was born in some sense from your deep desire not to waste and also the, the, I don't know what you would call it, the discomfort, the grief, the horror of having to give away this food or to trash this food that otherwise would have been perfectly usable by someone else. Mm-hmm. Have you found that it's been tricky to get people to come on board with the idea? Have you found that actually people have been very welcoming to it? What, what was the response in general, did you find? Well, we've had very mixed responses. So when I told the first few people about this idea of an app where you could give away food from your own kitchen, uh, most people thought that I was absolutely crazy and that perhaps baby brain had got the better of me and I should really go back to work. Uh, But I told my co-founder, Sasha, who 
uh, was one of my very closest friends and we had met doing our MBAs together at Stanford Business School mm. now about 15 years ago. And I told her about this idea of a neighbor-to-neighbor food sharing app and her eyes lit up. She immediately got it. The clue's probably in her surname. She's called <laughs> Sasha Celestial One. So her parents were sort of way out hippies in the Midwest um, of America. And like me, I guess she pursued a really different career from her upbringing and her background, but sort of, you know, scratch below the surface and, and there is underneath that sort of corporate business lady uh, is, is a hippie. And so I told her about the idea of, of Olio and she immediately got it. We, we then researched the problem of food waste and what we discovered absolutely shocked and horrified us. So globally, a third of all the food we produce each year gets thrown away, wow. which is worth over a trillion US dollars. Meanwhile, we have 800 million people going to bed hungry every night who could be fed in a quarter of the food that we waste in the Western world. And as if all of that weren't bad enough, the environmental impact of food waste is absolutely devastating. If it were to be a country, food waste would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the USA and China. And in fact, Project Drawdown, which is a global collaborative piece of work by a couple of hundred of the world's leading climate change scientists, issued their latest data in March of this year. Mm -hmm. And in it, they stack rank the top 100 solutions to the climate crisis. And for a sort of maximum two degree warmed world, in position number one, the single most important thing humanity can do is to reduce food waste. And that came above electric cars, above solar power and above a plant-based diet. So Sasha and I kind of went on this journey of uh, uh, awakening, really, to realise that sort of what sounded like some horrific dystopian nightmare was, in fact, our reality. And we, as part of that journey, we also discovered that in a country like the UK, half of all food waste takes place in the home. So half of that massive problem I've just described is is our fault, it's us. Um, and the average British family throws away over £700 sterling of food each year, which collectively adds up to £14 billion. So this is a very long roundabout way of answering your question about how people responded. And the reason why this is relevant is because once we had done that research, we had that fire in our bellies to solve this problem. And so we have encountered so many naysayers and so many sceptics and cynics. But knowing what we know that has not deterred us and we've just worked hard to kind of seek out the people who get it and actually we've discovered there's no shortage of people who get it we did some research very very early on and we found that one in three people identified with being physically pained throwing away good food Mm. and so we're really focused on those people and connecting them together enabling them to give away their food rather than throw it away. It's such a brilliant idea and it's something which is so simple when you lay it out like that. And yet, for some reason, it's something that we just don't think about. I know that with the lockdowns that came in, one of the first things that we did, because I'm living in Barcelona in Spain, was to stock up. It was about three days before they announced it because we had friends who were working in the government who said this is likely to come. And so we went and bought loads of dried goods and stocked up our pantry because we live in a small flat. And it was one of these things where immediately we were so much more conscious about food, where we were going to get it, how we were going to use it, how best to reduce waste, even down to things like making a large batch of something and freezing it. But it just made so much more conscious the the relationship that we have and how we engage with what we eat. And I wonder what your thoughts are around how this specific year might change our relationship to food in the ways that, for instance, people who've been through uh, world wars where there were food stamps, uh, yeah, how how that whole generation was marked by their experience. Do you have a sense that that might in some way come to pass with our generations now? 
So you are absolutely correct that it forced pretty much everybody to reevaluate the nature of their relationship with food. I think we mustn't forget that even in a country like the UK, there are millions of people who live in food poverty. So even prior to COVID, we have had over 8.4 million people in the UK living in food poverty who had a very different relationship to food than the other uh, sort of part of our population mm. who isn't living in food poverty. And I think that what COVID did was put even more people into that vulnerable group. And in the people who weren't in that vulnerable group, it really, really viscerally made them realise that food is, it's not only precious, it is our life source. We yeah. depend upon it. And I think you only had to see, you know, this was a classic example of an image speaks a thousand words. You only had to see a couple of photographs of empty supermarket shelves to get that sort of fear in the pit of your mm. stomach about mm. what happens if I can't access food. And that did result in a whole scale change in people's relationship with food. And uh, research was undertaken in the height of the lockdown and the height of the pandemic. And it found that over half of people said that they valued food more as a result of the crisis. My slight concern is that I think sort of human beings are very adaptable. And I think if we can sort of go back to business as usual or life mm. as normal, then then we will very quickly. And I, I sort of, I fear it's a bit like when you've had a, a loss or a grief, you, have, you do sort of move on. And, and I do have a slight concern that, you know, maybe this time in a year, vaccines have been rolled out and, and, and life has resumed and perhaps we might go back to our old ways of just being a little bit too complacent mm. about our, our relationship with food. Do you think, and I, sort of, I don't like to go into the political side of things, but I'm wondering with some of the stuff that we've been reading, I imagine you've probably come across this too, with, with Brexit and with the UK and the import of foods. I wonder if that's also going to play a role, if there's going to be an ongoing impact of our coming out of the European Union and what that means for the food that we can import and the availability of certain things and the price of certain things. I mean, obviously, this is at the moment up in the air. By the time this episode comes out, we hopefully will have more clarity. But do you think there are other factors at play that mean that we're going to have to continue to be more mindful about our relationship with food? Or do you think that we'll normalise in general and then, you know, we'll have to fight even harder to create that consciousness and that awareness again. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it all depends on, on how the Brexit negotiations pan out. <laughs> yeah. But I think that probably under most scenarios, we will find ourselves going to a supermarket and very just instinctively reaching out to the usual shelf for the usual product in the usual place and suddenly realising it's either not there or it's much more expensive mm. than it has been before. And as a result of that, I do think that it will encourage people to think a little more and be a little more inquiring about where does our food come from? Um, because I think at the moment, supermarkets just seem like this sort of automagical thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a sort of you know, Mary Poppins bag equivalent and just dispensing food endlessly. Mm. Uh, and, and, and when things are, are so easy and seamless, it's very easy not to ask any questions. And the reality is you know, our, our food system is profoundly broken. Uh, on, a, on a sort of climate crisis level, it's responsible for you know, the agricultural system end-to-end -end is responsible for a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions. When you look at our sort of biodiversity crisis, we've got one million out of eight million species at risk of extinction. Again, our agriculture system 
is a, is a large culprit there. And then when you look at health uh, and all the health problems that we have, an enormous amount of those are directly linked back to the food. I say that in quotation marks, if you could see me, the food that we are eating. Uh, and so we are going to, I think, have to become a lot more challenging of a food system that is no longer fit for purpose. I wonder from that perspective, because you've touched on some really powerful interlocking themes here. So not just where we get our food from, but also how we choose to eat and how that impacts our well-being and also the ways in which um, food is grown. So I know that there's been some interesting, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, I was reading in Wales, there's been some interesting gains made in the use of farm and agricultural land for rewilding purposes to create a system which is maybe a bit more balanced. Have you found some exciting things in that domain or maybe shifts that you're seeing in how we are starting to think about agriculture that give you cause for hope? Yes. So it again, you know, there's, there's lots of data and it, it's sort of contested and debated, but sort of, you know, give or take, there's plenty of evidence to show that our soils have degraded and are degrading at an extremely rapid rate. And, and you've probably heard of the headlines of only 60 harvests left, mm. etc. And so we are caught in a vicious cycle right now of big ag tech, which results in a system that has lots of chemicals, very little diversity, lots of sort of consolidation, etc., um, with very negative environmental and health outcomes. And we're in a spiral to the bottom. Mm-hmm. But there are growing examples all over the world of farmers who are experimenting and thinking differently. And what gives me hope is when I realise how little money has gone into innovating. You know, once we discovered fertiliser and plastic... <laughs> Uh, and, and a few sort of chemicals to preserve our food. We, we, we sort of stopped innovating and we just watched the money rolling in. Um, but unfortunately, we're getting sicker and the world is getting sicker and, and we need to urgently move enormous amounts of capital and have them focused on solving this problem of how we're going to feed the world. And by the way, this is not just feeding a world of seven and a half billion people that we are today. This is feeding a world of nearly 10 billion people that we're going to be by 2050. I am a big believer of the ingenuity of humans. We are incredibly resourceful and adaptable, but we do need the incentives aligning. So we we need regulatory change, we need tax incentives, and we need investment capital to move into these new ways of farming, which is a combination of harnessing the power of technology. So sort of going forward into the future, but also looking back into our past, Mm -hmm. because our ancestors had all of this pretty nailed they knew that waste was bad they knew that the soil needed to be protected nature was considered an entity in and of herself with rights Mm -hmm. Um, and I think adopting much more of that sort of mindset that our ancestors had uh, combining that with technology is probably going to be the route forward. That's fascinating I wonder also from an individual level because obviously the structural change that has to happen I imagine much of it has to happen on a large scale at the top and some of the investment that you're talking about, you know, this is large scale intervention. But in terms of our ability as individuals, in terms of what we buy, what we choose to lobby for, where we choose to apply pressure to our governments and our supermarkets, for instance, do you think there are certain things that people can do to change their relationship with the food that they eat? So something that comes to mind is the way in which... um, 
in the city where I'm living in Barcelona, when the restrictions hit, suddenly loads of people started planting tomatoes in their balconies. And I really <laughs> noticed it within yeah. about two or three months. People were just there were stories everywhere, all over social media, of people sharing their green fingers and this new connection with how plants grow and the new magic of it. And and it's kind of that sense of reconnecting again, not just with an individual plant, but with the, the cycle of growth, the cycle of life, the, the magic that comes with watching something unfold in that way. Do you think there are things like that that we can do to bring us back into a different relationship with the environment and also with the food? Massively. So this is the story that I think is is not being told. Because when, when you're reading in the media and you're looking at the data and looking at how things are being described, imagery and terminology is being used that feels very remote from me and you and our lives. And it's very easy, therefore, to become very depressed and just feel really uh, disempowered and kind of what difference can I make? Mm. But there's a couple of things that I would, I would say uh, to counter that which is broadly as the theme of we have as individuals enormous untapped power. So first point to reinforce that is the fact that a full 60%, so 60% of all greenhouse gas emissions are directly related to household consumption. Wow. So again, that's you and that's me. Mm. So we don't have to wait for governments or wait for businesses which are being woefully slow at responding to the crisis in front of us we can start to take actions ourselves that will have a real impact and real power and if we take just a, you know an example small example of food waste food waste alone is eight percent of all greenhouse gas emissions mm. globally that's more than the fashion industry so food waste is more than the whole entire fashion industry it's four or five times more than the aviation industry half of all food waste is taking place in the home so that means that we our actions do count and and what happens is that we don't tend to realize this we perhaps throw away you know, one or two brown bananas this week and think, oh, well, what, what difference does that make? It's only one or two bananas. Mm. But the thing is, there's 28 million other households in the UK also thinking the same way. Mm. And that is how very quickly stuff scales up so that millions of bananas, millions of tomatoes, 25 million slices of bread are thrown away by British households every single day. So we have an enormous opportunity to make change happen in our own homes. The other thing I think about this is that, again, you think, well, what difference do I make? Well, I encourage people to think of every pound they spend as a vote. So you can either vote for the status quo, which I think we'll all agree is not sustainable, horribly inequitable and just not a good place to be. Or you can use your money and vote for the future and what you want to see. And every time you transition your money or your pound out of something that's unsustainable into something that's more sustainable you are sending data up to those unsustainable companies who scrutinize that data for fractions of a change and they start responding to that and i really do think that anyone who has the ability to move their money really should because they can essentially it's kind of like the butterfly effect you can just take your small actions and that ripples up through the system which then drives the systemic change and i'll take one sort of specific example if you take sort of your diet specifically so obviously reducing food waste is a really simple really enormous thing that every single person can do to make a difference the other thing is is looking at the food that you are eating and we all need to eat an increasingly plant-based diet and mm. the really important thing to stress is that this is not about 
sacrificing things or asking people to kind of go without or live some sort of miserly, miserable life. As you kind of transition to a more plant-based diet, you save an enormous amount of money. You will find yourself becoming healthier. It feels good and it helps the planet and it's what we all have to do. But what I encourage people to do is not set themselves with unrealistic goals, but just to start on the journey. And if I just take sort of myself and, and our family, for example, we probably used to eat meat 10 times a week. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, so well, I mean, you know, by the time you put in lunch and dinner, yeah, a chicken sandwich yeah. at lunch and, and meat and two veg and dinner, you know, that's probably where, I mean, maybe it was a little bit less than that. I don't know, but it, that's probably fairly typical yeah, yeah. in the UK. And we just gradually over time have, have, you know, over a couple of years reduced it. And we just have meat once a week. Amazing. That's a 90% reduction in one family. And if all families sort of start going through that sort of transition, then we can have a massive effect. Mm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big, big believer in, in the power of individual action. But I, I think the best way to approach individual action is not to set yourself unrealistic targets and also to do what is easiest for you. I, I get very angry when I see people sort of shaming people or calling people hypocrites if they perhaps become vegan but then get a flight somewhere or vice versa. I think the reality is that sort of argument just puts us in paralysis and the only people who benefit when we're paralysed by inaction are the incumbents and the fossil fuel companies. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reality is everybody just needs to start doing their little bit in whatever way works for them. Mm. I really like the speaking to the agency that you're talking about. So being able to do what is within our power to do. And one of the things that I think is coming up quite a lot at the moment connected with that is how our agency connects with a sense of purpose or meaning. And I think when you tap into having something bigger that you're contributing towards, so this vision of a world that is rich and abundant and self-sustaining is a really powerful image to be able to work towards and to tap into. So I'm curious on that sort of thread of purpose. What does purpose mean for you in terms of your life and the work that you're doing? Wow, that's a big question. Can I just make one point actually, just tying on to the end of the discussion we've just had before I then sort of answer that? Because, so hopefully I've made it sort of very clear that we have enormous power through our own agency and it's really important to make a difference in whatever way you can and that will look wildly different for everybody and that's great Um, but a lot of people might be finding themselves thinking well where do I start Mm. what do I do my life is jam-packed uh, I've got mental overload as it is. How can I take on responsibility of saving the world as well today? Um, now, uh, this is a bit of a shameless plug, but we developed a section in the Olio app called Goals. And this is kind of a bit like Tinder for sustainable living. We take you on a journey. So you start off with 50 goals, which are simple swaps or steps that you can take to green your life, essentially. And they start off with really simple things like swapping your plastic toothbrush for a bamboo one, Mm. going all the way up to switching your bank account, changing your pension, getting green energy, etc., and everything in between. And we take people on a journey, and each week we release five new goals for them to to try and help people understand and inspire them Mm. with examples of small swaps and, and changes that they can make Uh, And we show them how many other people are kind of making that change as well. And we link out to further reading around that particular issue. And and if it's about swapping one type of product for another, we we make recommendations. And a lot of people are telling us they're finding that really helpful Mm. because they're not having to think too much. We've sort of 
done all of that thinking. That's very much come out of myself and my family. We've been on a journey for over three years now doing this. So I've just spent countless hours researching all of this stuff. And essentially, we've kind of bottled that up so that everyone else doesn't have to reinvent the wheel um, (laughs) themselves if they don't want to. So then linking, I guess, to, to answer your question about purpose. So is that is that purpose for me or purpose for Olio or I'd love to hear both I think let's start with you though because you're the primary driving force along with Sasha behind Olio so I'm curious yeah how that connects with you personally so um I, I realized that that was a bit of a weird question I asked you actually because actually if I'm being <laughs> honest sort of Olio's purpose and my purpose are so inextricably linked they're mm. sort of almost indistinguishable um for me now But I have a very strong burning desire to right injustices or right wrongs and to also just call out what I see is very clear um, in terms of the way the world is today and the way it needs to be going. And I want to use my time here to make a difference, to positively impact uh, other people and also ultimately the planet. Olio is really, really focused on specifically helping to address the climate crisis uh, so our, our mission is reducing food waste, although, of course, we do have lots of other, I guess, secondary purposes, if you like, which is that we are, you know, in some instances, giving people food that, who wouldn't otherwise perhaps have been able to eat that day at the most extreme. Um, so we are also helping to solve hunger and we're also helping to connect communities as well. And my sense of purpose is totally linked with Olio's sense of purpose and the, the the ambitions and goals that we've set ourselves for Olio, which are enormous. So we have said that we want a billion Olioers <laughs> by 2030. Uh, and that's terrifying to say out loud, but the reality is that reducing food waste is the single one most important thing humanity can do to mitigate the climate crisis. Mm. At the moment, we're barreling towards a three-plus degree warmed world, um, and we need to be at 1.5 degrees. And so that's why we've set ourselves kind of those those that enormous goal really Uh, and so I'm just very motivated on a personal level to play the role that I can in assembling the right team to make sure that we have a good chance of achieving that goal. That's so inspiring to hear you say that and I think also the other thing that I'm really enjoying about this conversation with you you are so well armed with all of these different really important and weighty facts and the ability to create a persuasive argument that's coherent to give people the agency to be able to make informed decisions. Do you find that a lot of people are actually really willing to get on board if they are just spoken to in a way that is more inquiring and open and engaging? Well, first of all, you flatter me. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just someone who's who's sort of formed down a bit of a rabbit hole just trying to figure out <laughs> what on earth is going on here. And then I, I come across these horrific statistics and I just can't believe that people aren't yelling from the rooftops that sort of the house is on fire. So I just uh, want to try and play my little role in, in helping to spread the word about that. Yes, I do think that more people care about this than it might initially seem. But the problem is that... No one is talking to us mm. as people living in our homes. We, we are, you know, and, and this is, I think, where the environmental movement unfortunately uh, missed a trick. There have been too many images of emaciated polar bears on ice floats mm. or of massive sort of manufacturing chimney stacks belching out horrible poisons into the air. And a lot of the imagery and language around this whole space just 
feels like it's got nothing to do with me. Mm, mm. And what I have realised is that it has everything to do with us. And so, yeah, I just really want to try and help people in, engage with it and think that what they do can make a difference. And, and the, the thing that's really, really cool about it is we're not trying to sell something that's like a dud product. <laughs> we're actually selling a brilliant product, which is you will save money, you will feel healthier, you will feel happier, your mental health will be so much better, your communities will be stronger. This is the world that we can be living in. And the terrible, terrible inequality of the current world, which is really, really linked to our consumption disease, mm. which is what we have, is sort of really problematic. And back to that sort of consumption point, and another thing, again, another sort of data point for your audience. <laughs> Through all of this, I, I discovered something called Earth Overshoot Day. Mm. And Earth Overshoot Day is the day in the year in which humanity has used all the resources that the Earth can replenish in a year. Mm. And that was first measured back in 1969. And in 1969 and 1970, Earth Overshoot Day was the 31st of December. Mm. And so what that means is humanity used in a year all the resources that the Earth could replenish in a year. So we were living back then in equilibrium with the planet. Mm. Now, you can probably sense where this is going. <laughs> you fast forward to this year and Earth Overshoot Day was the 22nd of August. Mm. And what that means just to kind of labour the point, is that every single thing that every single one of us, seven and a half billion people are consuming after the 22nd of August this year is net-net depletive to the planet. Mm. And that cannot continue. Now, the problem we have is that our whole economic system, our democracy, everything is built upon this, this model of consumption. Mm. But it's not making us happier or healthier. And what we really need to do is reinvent our economies mm. and transition away from this just sort of endless zero-sum consumption game mm. and move to something that's much more circular, regenerative, much more focused on services, much more focused on taking our time to produce fewer things better that last, that are good for us. That's a really interesting and powerful point you're making there because now we move into the, the domain of systems and whether we change the systems that exist or whether we aim to build something completely different. What are your thoughts around that? Because obviously with Olio, a lot of it is around sharing and presumably connected with that is the possibility of bartering. So if someone's got too many apples and you've got too many oranges, maybe you can do a swap. What are your thoughts around our relationship with the systems that are now at play and how we begin to change them and what we might change them for? <laughs> wow, you're, you're definitely asking all the big questions. And, and you know, I don't, I don't have answers to all of these, although I have some perspectives on some of them. Mm. But to me, it seems that our economic system, which seems to be the engine for everything, is pretty flawed. Mm. So at its heart, we have an obsession with GDP, um, now, we'll put aside the fact that GDP doesn't measure things like work in the home and things that are integral to, again, to our health and happiness. Yeah. It just measures that sort of economic um, output. But the, the problem with having a system that's focused on GDP, it optimises towards endless GDP growth, is that is just by definition not possible in a resource-constrained world where we, where we have a finite amount of resources. We cannot have endless growth of GDP. Mm. Uh, and so we are going to have to um, figure out some sort of alternative. And actually, if you go back to a lot of the sort of godfathers of, of capitalism, they 
they all talked about the concept of, of reaching a steady state hmm. when we no longer be just about growth. And we seem to have sort of forgotten mm. about that bit. So there's definitely a problem with the sort of the metric that we are chasing. I think there's another problem in terms of how capitalism has evolved. And again, there's nothing sort of in the laws of nature that says that this is what capitalism has to be like. Capitalism has evolved and changed over the past 30 years. And in particular, it has really zeroed in on this focus and this obsession with shareholder primacy and delivering shareholder returns at the expense of everything else. Mm. And again, if you just look at that from the outside, that is just not a sane sensible system it makes no sense whatsoever you know even my young kids can figure out that that sort of system doesn't make any sense mm. um, and that's why things like the b corp movement i think are really really interesting and so the, the b corp movement um, has a couple of thousand companies from across the world who have joined it and they've sort of changed their articles of association and earlier has done this as well we're not yet a certified b corp but we've changed our articles of association that govern the company through doing that we've done two things one we bake our mission into the company and then two we say that we are optimising not just for profits, but giving equal weight to people and to planet in all of our decision making. And again, that just strikes me as common sense. Mm. And I believe, I hope that in 10 years time, we will look back and certainly in 20, 30, 50 years time, and we will scratch our heads in disbelief that we had a system that was so imbalanced and thought that it was a sensible thing <laughs> to optimise for one stakeholder outcome no matter what the expense of our communities and our environment. Yeah, I mean, it does seem extraordinary that that we are just going for the one thing that can help us to continue to consume and not looking at things like well-being or sense of connectedness with other people or what have you. And one trend that I think that's super interesting that connects in with this is the way in which language has changed away from corporate social responsibility and more towards environmental, social and governmental changes that can be made. So this this idea of balancing purpose with profit and how that's even migrated into financial institutions, which is often the industry that is quite reluctant to change, especially when we're talking about making changes that some would consider undermines that system. In terms of your vision for the future, if you were to paint the ideal world that your kids would grow into adults and inhabit... What are some of the things that really stand out for you? What are the things that you're really working towards? Well, I'll give you, I'll pick one thing, which is a topic that we haven't covered yet, but something I, I feel very, very passionately about. I believe that an enormous part of why we've ended up in this ridiculous mess is because we have had a profound lack of diversity amongst the leaders of our society. Mm. And... I kind of I remember going on a run one day and I was kind of doing the five whys in my in my head as to kind of you know why are we in the situation that we're in and actually it all comes down to the fact that we have not got enough women and people of colour and people of um, different socioeconomic backgrounds and people people with different neurodiversity profiles in positions of power mm. because I'm really struck by the fact that I had a 20 year corporate career which was all about a very extractive model of economics. And there was a certain profile of person that sort of dominated that world. And now that I'm in a new world, which is all about trying to fix these problems and imagine a much better future and a much more equal and fair and sustainable future, I am stunned by the diversity of you know, fellow sort of travellers <laughs> along this road. So the world that I want to live in is one where we have true diversity of thought and of power and of access to capital. And I really believe that that would then result in a much better outcome 
for society when we stop optimising just for one tiny cohort mm. of us and we actually optimise for everybody. That's an interesting one. There's a thought experiment that my partner gave to me once that he'd read somewhere, which was whenever taking a large decision, or I guess even a small one, but putting oneself in the shoes of a random other being, like spinning a wheel and saying, okay, well, what would it mean if I took this course of action? How would it impact me if I were, for instance, a tree or a river or a wombat (laughs) or someone who is in a wheelchair and has limited mobility or whatever it might be, like putting yourself in a whole variety of different positions and suddenly realising that we could end up with much more robust and impactful solutions if we took in exactly as you say this kind of diverse spectrum of experiences and approaches in order to create a world that is so much more aligned to meet all of our needs because I think so many of our needs even though we see them as quite different they have a shared base which is how do we thrive and can we thrive together if we take such and such a decision forward. Do you think that there are some exciting innovations that you're that you're noticing that are starting to lead us into this direction. So alongside the work that you're doing with Olio, are there other companies or industries that are taking strides towards that sort of vision of the future? Yes, in a word. There's no shortage of entrepreneurs now who are realising that the world is deeply broken and can be much, 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 much better than it is today. And they're out there busy, sort of slogging their guts out every hour of the day, mm sacrificing everything to make that happen. The challenge that we have is that the world of capital has not yet sort of caught up. So those founders are struggling to get access to capital. A combination of things, one, because they're very diverse founders. Diverse founders don't get, you know, they get a rounding error of capital in in comparison to non-diverse founders. And also there's just not enough capital being deployed towards ESG. Although I like to I believe that change is starting to happen there. So, yes, there is an enormous, there's no shortage of activity taking place on sort of at the grassroots level. (laughs) What is the challenge, though, is that to make a lot of the change happen as quickly as we need it is going to require large corporates to make, to Mm -hmm. take meaningful action. And that, again, is where it comes down to our individual action as consumers and customers of those businesses. We need to be holding them accountable because the real magic is going to happen when these large established companies with their enormous routes to market and enormous capital reserves are partnering up with these startups that have developed a technology or a business model or or something to innovative solve these problems. And they combine that sort of innovation with that route to market. That's how we're going to get change at scale. Brilliant. So I want to ask um, a slightly different question, which is given all of the extraordinary research that you are doing at the moment, I wonder what's maybe one book that comes to mind that you have loved that you'd recommend that everybody reads and why? I'm going to be really cheeky and recommend three books. (laughs) Go for it. Brilliant. (laughs) So one is uh, Naomi Klein's book, Capitalism Versus the Climate. Uh, I think it's that way round. I can never remember which way round it is. Uh, and I think it's called This Changes Everything. Uh, that is a mind-blowing book. I recommend reading that first. Then as a second book, uh, there's a book by Paul Gilding called The Great Disruption. Hmm. So really kind of, I guess, Naomi's book paints the picture of where we are today. Paul's book 
gives us all kind of the boot up the arse of the enormous disruption that's happening. And then the third book I'd recommend, if you want to do something about it in an entrepreneurial capacity, is to read Eric Ries's book, The Lean Startup, which is a methodology and approach for getting product into market kind of as quickly as possible, test iterating and learning. It's something we've drunk the Kool-Aid on at Olio and found to be a really, really effective operating model. Brilliant. Well, there's some immediate resources that people can dive into. And I'm wondering, so you mentioned that you have you have kids and I have, there are many kids within my family. And I'm one of the things that I'm thinking is, it's connected to the education system um, and what will be valuable for people to learn as they grow into adulthood over the coming years and decades with the ways in which you're thinking about the future and how it can unfold and all of the different themes that we've touched on today, for kids who are wanting to grapple with this question and who want to help contribute to some positive change, are there certain routes that you think would be useful for them to explore, whether that's an entrepreneurial route or, or something that's more community-based? Is there something that you've kind of looked at that you think for your kids, well, actually, guys, maybe take a look at this? Oh, so much to say around the topic of kids. But in terms of sort of direction where I'd point them, I think the most important piece of work that anyone can do, kids or not, and it took me far too long to do this in my life, is to spend some quality time thinking about what you are truly passionate about, uh, whether it be fixing our healthcare system or fixing social inequality or social justice or the environment. Really spend some time thinking about what you naturally gravitate towards, what gets you interested, what gets you excited to find the domain. And then I think you need to, again, do something about what type of person are you. And for one person, it might make sense to go work for a large existing organisation that's doing fantastic work in the domain that you're passionate about. You should do that. And for other people, they can see a wrong in the world. They want to write it. No one else is doing it. And they should go off and and take that first step and start experimenting with finding a solution. So that's a wonderful prompt. And I've been searching for something like this online, a set of resources that can ask opening questions that enable us to search deeper within ourselves to get answers or starting places for that. Are there resources that you've encountered or has it been more of a question of going on those jogs, asking yourself certain questions <laughs> and then seeing what comes out? I'm laughing because if I had the time, I would desperately love to work with somebody to uh, set that up to help people find and connect with their passion. Because it's something that I never did because I didn't know how to do it. And maybe I was a little bit lazy and I was very lucky. I had opportunities sort of come to me. And the problem with that is you don't then necessarily end up doing your optimal uh, sort of thing that you'd like to be doing you end up just doing what happens to come in front of you and that's just not ideal but no I don't know I don't know of any of any resource but if anyone knows let me know <laughs> yeah likewise anyone listening get in touch so we're coming close to time and I've got a few more questions just to ask you if I ask you what would you like your legacy to be how might you begin to answer that I'm smiling because part of the impetus for me to start Olio was a period of reflection about my legacy and realising that whilst I had a career that on paper looked fantastic and Headhunters said was great, I personally felt that if I were to die tomorrow, I wouldn't have been proud. Mm. And that was really, really starting to bug me. And I wanted to stop being inspired by everybody else's life and being inspired by what everyone else had done. And I wanted to start being inspired by myself. And so that really helped 
me give the give myself kind of the, you know the metaphorical boot up the ass to get going with olio uh, and so i very much hope that olio will be my lasting and defining legacy you know if we can get a billion people sharing food instead of throwing it away then i will rest in peace very happily <laughs> wonderful and if you were to give people a question you'd like them to dwell with at this moment what might that be how can i make a difference okay uh, I really do believe that we are at a critical juncture for humanity. And once you've read that Naomi Klein book, you will know exactly what I am referring to. We need to be responding to the climate crisis as if it was a war. And that means that every man, woman and child needs to stand up and be counted and play a part. And so I would ask you, where were you? You know, you will be asked by your children, where were you during the war? And I think everybody needs to have an answer to that. Thank you. And finally, what vision of the world are you holding for other people? I really, really, really would like a fairer world. I, I think it's just awful how unequal our world has become. I read an article the other day talking about this sort of $25 trillion theft from the working class to the rich 1% in America over the past 30 years. And, and that's just been happening across the world the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and I don't think that is good for anybody and so if we had a more equal fairer world I think we would have better outcomes for everybody and I think we would have a more enjoyable happier just sustainable ecosystem and one that would be much better than the one that we have today. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating or review as it helps to reach new ears. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.